Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) In this episode of The Pleasure Podcast, we welcome Leila Slimani. She was the first Moroccan woman to win France's most prestigious literary prize, the Prix Goncourt, which she won for Lullaby. A journalist and a frequent commentator on women's and human rights, she is French President Emmanuel Macron's personal representative for the promotion of the French language and culture. We speak to Leila about her collection of essays, Sex and Lies, which examine the sex lives of women in Morocco. In these essays, Slimani gives voice to the young Moroccan women living in a conservative culture that at once condemns and commodifies sex. In a country where the law punishes and outlaws all forms of sex outside marriage, as well as homosexuality and sex work, women only have two options for their identities, virgin or wife. We discuss what it was like growing up in a liberal family within a deeply conservative society, the misconceptions about sex and sexism in Islam, and whether we can ever really know who we are when our country has been colonised. I grew up in Rabat, the capital of, of Morocco. My mother was a doctor and my father was a banker. And I have two sisters. And it was mostly a female house because I was living with my grandmother and my aunt. So my father didn't have a lot of space to express himself. And my parents were feminist and very liberal. And they always told us that we could choose whatever we want for uh, for the uh, as a job or choose our husband and that there was no restrictions in terms of religion, etc. But at the same time, we were living in Morocco, so they had to teach us about the laws of our countries. And I remember that when I was a teenager, they told me that I didn't have the right to have a sexual relationship with a man if I was not married, that I could go to prison, that I was I didn't have the right to be a homosexual or to have an abortion. And I remember that as a teenager, I was really outraged and scandalized by that because I knew that all my friends and my parents' friends and everyone was having were having a sexual relationship, that abortion were happening every day that a lot of my friends were homosexuals. So I couldn't understand how is it possible that we are doing all that. But at the same time, the the laws tells us that it's forbidden and that it's wrong. So you learn to be a sort of hypocrite, to have a schizophrenic life where you act in a way uh, in front of people and you act in another way when you're alone or 
with people you trust. People are not educated to be transparent and to assume their identity and to assume their acts. I think that we really, really live in a culture of hypocrisy and it comes also from the influence, you know, of the culture of uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and all this Wahhabism that is this culture of conservative where you always have to look very virtuous and a little bit sad and profound and where this idea of, uh, of sex, of joy, of eroticism, of transparency is much more associated with the Western world and it's something wrong because it's like people do this in, in France or in England and it's a bad things people are you know when you speak with people they say you know in those countries uh, gay people they can get married and women they are almost naked in the streets and uh, if we accept that we are going to lose our tradition and our culture so it's also that it's not so much about purity it's much more about the fact that people are afraid of losing their identity but i think that rape and intolerance and um Putting people in jail because they are homosexual is not a culture, it's not an identity. We can find another identity, I think. In the book, there's some terrific stories of young people, by hook or by crook, going to fight to have sex. No matter, you know, finding the most ingenious ways of, whether it be vans that drive around that they can hire out to have sex in, or going to forests or cars and that kind of stuff. Did, did that feel like that was happening a lot when you were growing up? Yes, that was happening a lot, but I must say that when you are living it, most of the time you are very afraid. Yes. And especially when you're a woman. You are afraid of the police, you are afraid of your parents, you are afraid that the, the place or the location you chose is not safe enough and something is going to happen. And the other thing is that when you have a sexuality that is always prepared, I mean when there is no spontaneity because you have to find a place, you have to rent an apartment, you have to ask for someone else to, to give you a, a room or something, it means that when the thing is happening and as a woman maybe you don't want anymore, you don't have the desire to have sex. The men have the possibility to pressure you a lot. He's going to tell you, you know, you don't have the choice. You told me it's this afternoon and I rented this place and now you're here and now you're going to have sex, what if you want it or not. So as a woman, it's something very, yeah, you, you're always very scared because even if he rapes you in this situation, you can't go to the police. What are you going to say to the police? Because the police is going to ask you, but what were you doing alone with a man in this place? You had a sexual intercourse without being married, so you are an outlaw too. So I think that um, even after, if after you think about it, sometimes you laugh because you're like, ah, it was funny the way we found a place. But when you're living it, it's very, very scary. Yes, yeah. I was reading about sort of the Moroccan context, and I'm going to pronounce this terribly wrong, so tell me how it's pronounced. Shashuma? Shashuma. Shashuma. Um, so it's shame or embarrassment. I mean, it's, it's, it's a concept that I think that's quite uh, uh, broadly applicable to lots of sort of cultural or religious sort of uh, behaviours. You know, you're, you're taught shame at a young age, you're taught to fear, you're taught to be embarrassed about your body or nudity or, or physical affection. I mean, how, how is it particular to Morocco? It's just that this word is a word that you use all the time, all day, and for many, many situations. If you want to say, to, to tell a child to be polite, you will tell him, be ashamed. 
And be, to be ashamed is to be polite. Someone who, who doesn't feel shame is someone who has no politeness, who comes and, and sits without asking. If you are ashamed, it means that you, you considerate to, to, other, to other people. So it's not all bad. There is something beautiful also in this idea of, of shame. But I think that women are uh, carrying the burden of shame much more than, than men. People tell you that you have to put a veil on your hair because you should be ashamed. They, you know, this, it comes from very, very, very long time ago from this idea that uh, of Eve, this idea that women are the temptator and that's because of the woman that we are out of the paradise, out of the, the garden of, of, of Eden. So we must be very careful with women because women, she, she comes with, um, with shame, with scandal, with temptation, and she will break everything. So we must be very careful with women and control her and dominate her because there is something in the femininity that scares a lot uh, men, I think. Would you mind giving us a quick rundown about the laws in Morocco? Yeah, so the penal code in, in Morocco that is m very much inspired actually by the French penal code. So it has nothing to do with Islam because people always tell me it's Islam. It has nothing to do with Islam. It's almost uh, the copy of the Napoleon code of uh, France. Wow. So it forbids uh, sexual intercourse when you're not married and you can go to prison six months to one year. For homosexuality, you can go also to prison six months to three years. And for adultery, and also abortion is forbidden. And now there will be the possibility to get an abortion in case of rape or very serious malformation, but it's still forbidden. And in Morocco, there are like between 600 and 800 abortions per day. And so this is all done on the black market, so to Yes, speak. of course, on the black market. Sexuality is a big market because when it's forbidden, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. So a lot of prostitutes in Morocco, a lot of abortion that you pay, it's very, very expensive. Um, and the thing is, it's also a question of social class. When you belong to my social class, which is the, the bourgeoisie, the Moroccan bourgeoisie, actually you have the same sexuality as a Parisian man or woman or a Londoner because you have a house, you have a car, you can hide from other people. If you need an abortion, you can go to Paris or whatever to get an abortion. You can give money to a policeman if he arrests you and he's going to go away. And, but when you're a woman, when you're poor, when you live in the same house as your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your grandmothers, your cousins, you have no space. You, it's Virginia Woolf. You have no rooms of your, your own to, to dream and to have an intimacy and, and just a place where no one is looking at you no yes. one's judging you they live always under the pressure of uh, the neighbors of the mm. parents of the family yes. of the clan so it's very very difficult in fact reading a lot of the stories in the book I got a real sense of a kind of a big brother society because I was thinking about well how are these laws enforced but actually it seems that neighbors friends family seem to be a, a very watchful force in making sure that of society course. adhere to these social rules and the problem is also that those laws now are a very useful tool for revenge. 
if you don't get along very good with your neighbor and he knows that you are meeting with men, he's going to call the police. If you are a journalist or political who is against the, the authorities, against the power, and they know that you are homosexual or that you are getting an abortion, they will call the police. So the problem is you are afraid of your own neighbor, you are afraid of everyone because you know that even if those laws are not applied every day, they can use it against you. It's an extraordinary form of sort of self-reflective control, isn't it? It makes you feel that I would feel very paranoid. Yeah, yeah of course. You feel very paranoid and people make you feel very, very paranoid. But, and also there is a big difference, of course, if you live in a big city like Casablanca, where there, there are five million inhabitants and people live like in Paris, London, or, or if you live in a very little town where everyone knows everything about you. You talked about the exclusion of children born out of wedlock. You'd be given a specific surname identifier that would suggest you were born out of wedlock, which then means you are from birth labelled. Exactly, and that's absolutely terrible. That's a tragedy for those children and that's a tragedy for the for the mothers because women who have children in Morocco without being married, they are outcast. Very often they are rejected by their families. So when they come from the countryside, they take the, the bus to arrive in, in Casablanca and they settle there alone without the hope of, to find a, a job and very often, and that's very sad, they become prostitutes. So now there there is a lot of activism to help them and I think that Moroccan people have changed a little bit the way they look at those women but for the children it's still very very difficult and I think that now I read a statistic saying that like two million children in Morocco don't have a real ID we don't know where they are and who they are because the mother they don't even want to go to the administration and give the name so we have like two million young people and we don't know who they are, their identity, their names, where they live, etc. And that's very dangerous, I think. It was quite shocking in quite a few of the stories, mentions of a bit of a content warning here, but of people finding a lot of babies in bins. But you know, I read a lot of things about Ireland in the 19th century or about the south of Italy in, in the same period. It was the same. Mm -hmm. Being a woman and having a child without being married, you were an outcast, a paria. And the, the, the tragedy that lived, the, the, those women, you know, put in a, in, in a monastery, in a couvent, with the, the religious pressure also, it was, it was terrible. So what we are living now is something sadly very common. There seems to be another thing that's very important, not just in Moroccan society, but in, in, in lots of places, which is the importance of virginity and the importance of a woman to hold on to her virginity. When you were growing up and with your friends, etc., was it something people talked about? Yes, all the time. And they were making a sort of difference between the woman you are sleeping with and the woman you marry. And I was always shocked and very furious against my male friends saying to them, but you're such hypocrites because you are having sex and at the same time you say, yeah, but I would never marry the woman I'm having sex with because she's too easy to have. And I was like, I don't understand how virginity can be so important to you. Maybe when you're a boy and that people telling you that all the time, all the time, all the time, you, you believe it. The fact that uh, people tell you that uh, uh, you have to be a good girl, that you have to be a virgin, that you don't have to do this or that, is that from the beginning I've always felt that I was 
not pure because people look at you all the time saying oh you know as a woman you you shouldn't do this and do that and you shouldn't be a temptator and you shouldn't wear this so i was like what is the problem with me what is is it just the fact that i was born as a woman make me and pure make me and I always felt dirty I don't know why yeah you, you describe it brilliantly in the book as well that you'd sinned without sinning yeah yeah because people prevent you so much against all your what you're supposed to do what you're supposed not to do and they don't do that with boys boys they tell them you should have a lot of experience and show how adventurous you are and how brave you are and for a woman it's so different they always say don't fall in love be very careful when you go outside so i felt very fragile and i felt very dirty without knowing why what i was surprised about in the book and in this with the stories is that actually there is a lack of affection mm. that there is a sense that actually just showing affection of course is as bad as well you might as well have been having sex then that one sort of equals the other so that you will get some families their kids may not ever see their parents um being affectionate towards each other you know hand holding a little kiss or an embrace it was a it was like that in my family i've never seen my parents kissing each other or holding hands uh, people in Morocco are very, uh, we say pudique in, in, in French, I don't know how to say in, in English, but they are very shy when it comes to showing this kind of, um, of signs of affection. People are very, very tender with children, mm. with old people, but not couple. But when I say don't fall in love, I think that when I was a teenager, people used to tell me, you know, women, they are very weak when it comes to love. When they are in love, they will say yes to sex. So men will influence her and will manipulate her and he will use the feeling of the woman who is easily in love. So that's why don't fall in love, don't fall pregnant, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. <laughs> Yeah. I understand that you lived in France as well. So what was it like when you, you, know, you obviously you'd grown up in a, you described as a bourgeois family, um, a reasonable status, I mean, uh, dad was a doctor, etc. And then you moved to France. Yes, How I moved when I was 18 to, to study. And uh, of course it was very different. And um, in terms of, of sexuality, obviously it was very different. But I must say that I arrived in France thinking that you can do whatever you want and that there is a, a pure and total equality between men and, and women and that I was in the country of uh, Simone de Beauvoir so you know I was fascinated but um, I discovered exactly as Simone de Beauvoir wrote it that there are still a lot of things to do even in a country like France and um, I think that the world made me a feminist and the streets made me a feminist because the first time I took the, the subway during the night, the first time I was followed by a man in the street, the first time I began to find to, to, to look for a job and uh, the man asked me like three times, but do you want to have children and uh -huh. when do you want to have children? And um, the first time I had a child and my employers had a different um, attitude towards me because I used to be a reporter and to travel a lot and they said to me no you shouldn't travel you know now you're a mother and you have to be a good mother so you know I, I, I get conscious that even in France of course there are a lot of misogyny and there are still a lot of fights to to fight for yeah, yeah. I was interested that um 
that how you speak about that a lot of feminists in Morocco and feminist charities shy away from talking about sexuality, although are very happy to talk about maybe more a legislation and more overtly political issues that might, well, seemingly more political issues, which might, which include education, healthcare, etc., but feel that sex is something that they ought not to touch. Yeah, and I can understand them because they belong also to another generation and they know that as soon as you're going to deal with this question of sexuality, people, your opponents, conservative, are going to shame you and to say you're a slut, you want everyone to have sex, that's uh, you want our countries to become like uh, Western countries and you want everyone to be homosexuals and you know this kind of, of speech and this kind of, of ideology and you must be prepared to to fight against that and I think that for a lot of feminists in Morocco it's something very tricky and they don't want that and you know my opponents they can be very violent they threaten you to death to to rape they shame you and they uh, want to know about your own sexual life and uh, so it's very very violent so I would never judge someone who doesn't want to to do that because I know the cost of, of this fight. So yes, and it I might negate all the good work that they're yeah, doing outside absolutely, of that. Absolutely. But what I try to, and also, you know, sometimes the feminists, they tell me, but you know, it's not the priority. The priority it's uh, education. The priority is the fight against poverty. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't mean that I don't have to fight for this also. I'm not against uh, all those fights. Of course, it's very important. but. I fight for a very simple thing, for my dignity. I fight just to own my own body. You know, when you suffer, you suffer alone. When you are ill, when you have a cancer, you have it alone. It's your own body who has it. And when you die, you die alone. So this body, I'm the only one who's going to carry this body with me until the end. So the only thing that I ask for is to do whatever I want with it. That's it. And to have my dignity. In the book, there are sort of lots of linkages made between the impact of colonialism on Morocco, which is then uh, intertwined with Islam and the cultural background of, of the region. A lot of countries are the result of um, a melting pot of different cultures, ideologies, um, backgrounds, legal systems, etc. For example, uh, the UK has many colonies where the homosexuality laws are still present within the Commonwealth. Uh, in some of those countries, but they've been removed from our own yeah. uh, legal states. And I understand that's similar to the French system in Morocco. So I'm just trying to think about the different types of impacts that Morocco has to deal with, um, because, because the outcome you're writing towards the end of your book is about, well, how about thinking about an entirely new ideology? Exactly. You know, rather than starting from bits and pieces of everyone else's ideas, the only way to move forward is actually to perhaps build our own. You know, as I was speaking of Simone de Beauvoir, and I think of myself as an existentialist. And what is the definition of that is that you can invent yourself. You don't know who you are at the beginning. You don't have an identity that is here forever. Every day you invent yourself by what, by what you do, by, by your actions. And I think that we should exactly do that for, uh, we can do that for a country. The idea that we are not our culture, but we invent our culture every day and we can modify it and we can uh, transform it and we can make it better. So that's why I fight against conservative. The idea of conservative is we are this forever. Ever. Hmm. 
and we have this religion forever and we interpret our religion this way forever and we don't want any, any change. And I think this uh, question of colonialism is very, very important. And I wrote a book with uh, an historian called Pascal Blanchard about the link between sex, race and colonialism. What is very interesting, if you look at different postcards or very big um, paintings in the times of the, the colony, and it's true for Britain and for France, very often Africa or Asia is figured by a woman. That when you want to conquer Africa, it's an African woman, and very often you can see her breasts, etc. And she's so beautiful. And um, the French man or the British man is going to conquer this this woman and her sexuality, and she's mysterious. And I think that men in our countries were so humiliated by that, by the fact that um, men, um, white male, not only took the territories, but they took their woman. Their woman changed, they changed their clothes, they changed the way they behave. And um, I think that there were a lot of humiliation. For instance, my grandfather, he always told me that uh, white male humiliated his mother, his sister and his own wife. So now there's a kind of revenge. You tried to humiliate us, you tried to take our culture, you tried to diminish us and we are going to revenge and they are going to revenge on what? On women. So I think that now there is a kind of a desire to demonstrate their virility. After losing their country, they were defeated in front of their woman, in front of everyone and they lost their culture, they lost their authority, they lost everything. So now there's, I think, a real desire to show their virility, their lost virility. Wow. It's interesting that's demonstrated by a control. Absolutely. And you talk, I mean, in the book, it explores the idea that, and you're talking about translation as well of ideas, um, that the Quran demonstrates Muhammad is having a very fulfilling sex life. And the 15th century Islam is exploring the ideas of eroticism um, and, and then lots and lots of beautiful works of describing it. And it sort of feels to me that you're mentioning the fact that as a society is expanding, it can be more worldly, it can be more thoughtful about um, sex and, and, and relationships, etc. You mentioned in the book that orgasms are, are a sort of... A, a, close sort of, to paradise. Close to paradise. Yeah, you know, in the Sufism, for example, and Sufism is very powerful in, in Morocco, they consider that sexual intercourse is a way to have a dialogue with God. It's a, a way to reinforce your spirituality, etc. Mm -hmm. So there is no contradiction between sexuality and religion and Sufism, etc. But uh, I think also that the problem is a problem of education. That's why what I want to tell to the young people is learn about your religion, about your history, about colonialism, about Quran, about all that, to understand why people tell you that it's not good to have sex or why it's not good to be a homosexual. You have to understand understand why it's not you, you can't just accept it because people tell you it's like that as a Moroccan you should hate homosexual and you should uh, this or that so yeah that's the only thing I fight for try to understand why you're living in this situation there was a fascinating academic that you interview who looks through the Quran and tries to reinterpret it. Well, not actually reinterpret it, sorry, no, reveal what is said there and compare it to, I suppose, what is being preached today. And she t 
talks about the eroticism, but also how the genders, actually, in the Quran are not clearly defined in terms of who should be doing what and the shame and the covering, which I thought was fascinating. I think we're often taught wrongly in the West that Islam is particularly misogynistic, but that isn't necessarily the case from the Quran. No, and I think, to be honest, that every religion is misogynistic. I can't see any religion that is okay with my vagina. Every religion <laughs> wants to control it. Yeah. Everyone. So um, I have a problem with every religion. And uh, the other thing is the problem with Islam is that for a very, very long time it was impossible for women to interpret the text and to have any authority uh, saying it's like this or it's uh, like that. So um, that's why Asman Mahabed, this woman, is so important today in a country like Morocco because she's the only woman who has today the authority to interpret the sacred test. But you know, now she lost her job and oh. she, yeah, she was threatened a lot because of what she says about sexuality, so it's still very, very hard for a woman to deal with this kind of, of topics. Uh, is it sort of seen as sacrilegious? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was exactly her that was, that was talking about looking at wh where you've come from and how you've developed as a, as a country or, or as a culture. Um, and it shouldn't be about accepting a Western model for the society or the ideals of women, because I'm not sure that we've got it right in the West, for example. Uh, and I think it's interesting where the appropriate civilization that should be imposed upon other people comes from sort of European versions of cultural norms, uh, societal norms, uh, feeling that they are civilized, whereas the Asians and the Africans are not. Um, uh, and she was, she was fascinating about talking about, yes, okay, let's move beyond that. Let's not think about Western ideology, but you know, let's have that in our minds. But let's have a, have a new conversation about what is possible and what's new. And it sounds like it's yeah, very difficult for a woman to actually say these things without fear of retribution. And I think also that we have this... Um we can find everything in our own culture. If we look at our past, our, at our history, you know, a country like Morocco were, was colonized by the Arabs and then colonized by the French. Today, it's a country that is like every country in the world, influenced by the globalization, so America, etc. We have a sort of colonialism, as I said, by Saudi Arabia and the Wahhabists, but People have lost completely the track of their own traditions, their own cultures, who we are. And to be honest, there are so many beautiful things in the Moroccan tradition, in the Moroccan culture. We are a very strong culture and very complex. And when I look at the way my grandparents or my grand-grandparents used to live, so much tenderness, for example, towards old people and children, a lot of respect towards women, uh, our songs, uh, the way people live. So I think that we should rediscover who we are and try to put away all the things that come from we don't know where and try just to use who we are and our traditions and our cultures. And um, yeah, we have this possibility, I think. Sex and Lies is published by Faber and Faber and is available at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoyed this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and gives the series a boost. Give us five stars, you lovely lad. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. 
Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex, and of course, pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.